I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where tonight we are delighted to have as our guest author the artist Celia Paul to talk about her latest book, Letters to Gwen John, published by uh, Jonathan Cape. I've only just seen it today, and it's a really beautiful volume, I think. Um, Celia will be in conversation with the novelist and essayist Olivia Lang. Uh, they'll talk for 45 minutes or so, after which there'll be time for questions using the roving mic, after which there will be time for the signing and the buying of books, which you will see displayed at the front here. On practical housekeeping matters, I need to point out your fire exits, which unsurprisingly are the doors there <laughs> and the one at the back. Um, ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent or vibrate or whatever suits um, and ask you if you've got a wine glass make sure you don't kick it over when you rise to your feet at the end of the evening in clamorous approbation <laughs> um, with those points out of the way let me hand you over to Olivia and Celia hello thank you um, wow it just feels really amazing to be back in the shop physical real shop um, I'm just going to say I, um, I've had Covid and I'm recovering so if I'm reading questions like in a monotone it's not lack of enthusiasm it's sort of exhaustion but um, I'm, there was just no way I could miss tonight I really I've loved Celia's work for a long time but these two books I think are something really special and particularly this new one which is called Letters to Gwen John and which is composed partly of real written letters to Gwen John and reflections on the life of Gwen John and on Celia's own life so thoughts about art about love about the kind of life that you need to live or make in order to produce paintings and it travels very deep I think it goes to it goes to some really interesting places um I'm going to ask 10 questions and then I'm going to open it up to, to you guys and to people who are watching online. Um, we'll talk about all kinds of things, but I wanted to start with, John, you, you write so beautifully about her work and the sort of understated power of her work, the restraint of her work, and those words under... the the sense of it being restrained, I think, has led to it being really almost invisible, that she's not an artist who's had her dues, and you really make a case for her being a very important artist. So I wanted to start with just what, what drew you to John? What is it about John that made you feel such a kinship? Um, well, I think I've always felt this affinity, and so it's quite difficult to say when it started. But um, there's, um, there's a small painting in the, in the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge. Um, it's only about this big, which I start the book describing, and it's called The Convalescent. And um, the Fitzwilliam has some great paintings, as you know, and it's in a, a square room with Stanley Spencer opposite great paintings. Um, but it, it's this big, but it dominates the room. The, the, the power of it is difficult to convey. And it's to do with the intensity of focus that um, 
you just know that she gave it everything and and to do that her whole life was focused on this painting and it and that's what comes across had you seen her work before you became a painter um see that's so difficult to say because i i kind of became a painter not really knowing much about art actually i um and so i kind of gradually got to know painters when i came to the Slade at um, 16, but before that I, I just um, painted because I needed to, I think, control my feelings. So, Without having a sense, these aren't part of my ten questions, so I've gone <laughs> off these already, um, without having a sense of what other people's paintings looked like. Yes. I didn't know this actually. No, no, I didn't have any real idea of um, art. So, I'm just going to read a couple of lines because there's a real sense in the book of art is this sort of totally involving, totally encompassing, rigorous path. It, there's an almost sort of romantic sensibility about it that I really responded to. And John takes this route, very unlike her brother, she takes this route, she moves herself to Paris. She lives a life of real sort of isolation and poverty, a kind of classic artist's life. And it starts to sort of emerge that there's a pathway to being an artist that is a kind of saint's path. It's a path of rigor, deprivation, total commitment. And I just want to read a couple of quotes that I really liked. The first one, I think, is by Gwen John, which is, one can only get to heaven alone. Yes. That's John, isn't yeah. it? Yes. And then the other one, which is you, which says she's going to side with loss and solitude like the saints. And I thought that those were a, and a sort of amazing way to go, but I wondered how much you felt like that now, or whether that was you at the beginning of your life thinking that that was the way to be an artist. Because um, she pays a heavy price, doesn't she? She does pay a heavy price. And um, I think... Um, I think I, I, I know that I, I have to keep my life very, very separate. I mean, I've been very, very disciplined about keeping my studio, which is also where I live. Um, I, I uh, keep it without any intrusion. Um, I haven't even had my son to live with me. And um, I've had to be quite ruthless because I do get very distracted um, and and especially by social kind of interactions as well I, I find that really really um, impacts on my work and takes away from the intensity of it um, so um, it it is it, it is a, um, a dilemma um, because um, because it does seem to be to make a choice between being in a loving relationship and and love and mm. following your own path and and i'm not sure how much more difficult that is to make those choices if you're a woman actually we'll talk we'll talk yeah. much more about yes. that yes again i'm <laughs> I've completely lied about this 10-question business. It's not going to happen, because each question is just making me want to ask other things, which is, how, how... Do you think John felt at the end of her life that that, that, that decision was worth it? Because you, you sort of see her... She starts off at art school, and she's this sort of... She is quite sociable and mm -hmm. very kind of charismatic and having love affairs, and gradually she sort of recedes from society, and she makes these decisions that are almost quite self-punishing. Yes. Does that seem fair to say? Yes. No, she, I think she lives in really harsh conditions. Yes. What did, what did you think was going on there? And did you think that that was necessary for the making? Um, I do think... I mean, she looked at... Um, she read a lot about... Uh, of the mystics, like St John of the Cross was very important. And... Um, and that kind of monastic life where hardship goes hand in hand with um, 
striving for saintliness. Um, and um, so she really is on a sort of saint's path. Oh yes, on a saint's path. She wants to be a saint. Yes. So, um, and that's you have you know saints are extreme. <laughs> yeah. So, mm. And um, yeah, immoderate. There's something very immoderate about it. It feels. Well, it feels kind of wild. It feels like she's really going for something that isn't very socially sanctioned, and she's utterly committed to mm. it. Yes, and I think, um, I mean, there's another painter that I admire um, who shares a similar <coughs> kind of quality of silence, and, and that's Agnes Martin. And, and you just know that she had to have painted those paintings in the middle of the desert, that you mm. know, she couldn't have um, painted those paintings if she'd been going out to cocktail parties every evening in New York. And um, I think the way you live your life does definitely affect the kind of painting you, you do. I feel like people kind of don't say this enough, that there's such a sense that artists are supposed to be worldly now and supposed to be kind of socialising and going out to things. Mm. But actually, you're right, that it does require relinquishment. Mm. Yes. And I, um, and I think kind of um, that self-denial um, can't really be defined as victimhood. You know, it can't. It's, yeah. a, it's a strong decision, and um, it, it may seem self-punishing, but it's not out of a kind of narcissistic self-punishing. It's, it's for a purpose. Which is... Yeah. Yeah, which I think you managed to articulate really well, and which is a fine distinction, but a really vital distinction. OK, so here's, here's another um, completely fantastic quote. But my desire was for the shadowy crime of painting. I longed to be alone and free to create my secret, unsettling art. I love the use of the word crime in that sentence, and I wondered, is it a crime for everyone, or is it a crime for women? Um, what is the crime? The, the crime, because it feels... Um, it's a quite a difficult thing to say, but because it um, it has to happen in secret, um, mm. and because it draws on um, hidden feelings, um, and painting is a way of controlling those feelings that could get out of control if you, if you weren't doing something with your hands. And so to turn it into creative rather than destructive. Um, but still, the two, you know, uh, uh, opposites. And so um, to stop destroying, you create. And, but there's a connection to a, a sort of criminal um, impulse. I just <laughs> love that. I love that. And I think... You, you, see, you see with Gwen John, towards the end of her life, when she's writing those sort of overspill of love letters to people, and sometimes they're not even people she knows terribly well, mm -hmm. that the passion uncontained or the passion in a different arena becomes very dangerous to her and to people yes, around her. Yes. But when it's channeled into the painting, and those paintings look, at first glance, like the calmest, mm -hmm. you know, most benign, defanged scenes imaginable, mm, yes. and gradually you realise that the intensity in them is something else, yes, that they're visionary. Yeah. That they are visionary, exactly. And, um, and they wouldn't have that intensity if, if they weren't, you know, if the um, feeling hadn't been so condensed, this overcharged feeling hadn't been so condensed. And restrained and, restrained. and channeled yeah. very finely. I mean, you see a bit of that in um, Cezanne. I mean, his early work is so kind of um, uh, violent and, you know, the, the paint marks are so um, full of wild impasto. 
and then they become more and more and more visionary towards the, the later part of his life as he again kind of um, restrains and and he again um, I think would, would wants to be a saint in that way. So. This is another. This is another side question, but. How do you see the relationship between Gwen and Augustus? Because I remember when I was sort of a teenager and first becoming aware of them, it was absolutely Augustus John was the painter and Gwen was his sister, who mm -hmm. also did some paintings. And that's obviously completely reversed now. You don't really hear much about no, Augustus John, but no. can you talk a little bit about um, the two of them and how, how they were seen in their lifetimes? Well, he, was, he went to the Slade a couple of years before her, and then she um, went there too. And um, he quite soon got a reputation as a genius. <laughs> and, um, and she was never called a genius, but, you know, she was praised, and Augustus was tremendously um, generous and supportive of her, and because of his easy success, he always kind of made sure she was um, included in the um, the exhibitions, the you know the new new what is it called New English yeah. Art Club, and um, um, and I think to some extent she found this quite intrusive. He he um, needed an audience always for his paintings, and um, he was obviously very so sociable and um, and charismatic and a character, and obviously more and more as he as he got older, had a more and more kind of complicated love life, which mm. everyone was very excited by <laughs> and um, and you know he, he became this kind of figure um, and I think what he didn't realize or maybe he didn't want to realize is that Gwen never never wanted that she never needed attention for yeah. her work I mean she didn't need an audience response it was a private thing so she from quite early on kind of resisted um, his intrusive help. That's one of the things that I found really interesting in their dynamic is that she, well, she moves to Paris first of all, but she also just sees, if you're online and you can hear lots of noise in the background, it's because there's a bar outside, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, she, you feel like she is, um, you know, really repelling him f force politely, but forcibly. Mm, yes. Or that she doesn't want to be drawn into that kind of pat patron patronage, maybe. Yes, but I think she also was aware that she needed to find her own voice because um, I think part, you know, I do talk about how um, she was very receptive to everything. She was so thin-skinned that mm. she absorbed everything as well as, you know, reacting to everything. And she could very, very easily be taken over by other people. And this is a, a fear she had, and it's part of her fear of intrusion, is her fear of being over-influenced. And um, she and Augustus did live together um, when they were at the Slade. And you can see that her paintings were almost, could have been by Augustus. Um, there's a, a big yeah. kind of gouache painting she did um, of all the Slade school friends, which is very anecdotal and um, without any kind of emotional depth um, and dramatic in a different way. And, um, and she did this self-portrait, which is a, a great painting, but she became greater. Um, she did a, a great self-portrait, um, I think it was in 1900, um, uh, uh, it's in the National that Portrait. The yeah, that's yeah. a wonderful painting, you it's, worth, it's yes. worth looking it up. But it's, it's, um, she's got this kind of flamboyant 
bow. Um, she's wearing a kind of russet dress, and she's just challenging look mm. out at the viewer. She is not shy and um, retiring in this painting at all. And it was at the time that, you know, Augustus was drawing her more and more into the art world. And she was, you know, gaining success. And um, if she'd carried on in this way, I think she would have become a much, much more successful painter in her day because she, um, she was more conventional, really, and people knew where they were with her. That, that sort of leads me nicely to what I wanted to ask next, which is one of the things that I found quite fascinating in the book is that she emerges as somebody who's continually being described by other people as, um, you know, very humble, very muted, um, sort of not weak-willed, but, you know, modest and small. And actually, she emerges out of the book as this person of quite spectacular willpower, mm. almost arrogance. She's yes. completely certain about what she wants to do. She discards anything that isn't what she wants to do. And in some ways, you come across sort of, not saying you're arrogant at all, but it's a, it's a sort of guise. The, the modesty comes kind of peels away to show somebody who has absolute laser-focused commitment on what they do. And there's a lovely anecdote where um, Celia is working with the critic Hilton Isles and he describes you as a very patient woman and then you say, well, what's happening with these shows and I want this to happen? And he's like, oh, oh, I thought I, I, thought I was rescuing you and you're actually on your own. So I, I, sort, of, I sort of loved that sense that... These other selves, you know, the immodest artist self emerges out of this kind of appearance. And I wanted, to, I wondered whether you could talk about that a bit. Is that something um, you saw in her? Yes. I mean, I think for both of us and for, for any kind of dedicated painter, um, you know, the art is, is the central thing. And so, um, yeah, to... to she could she couldn't stand any nonsense and um, where it came to her art but she she did quite like being dominated in, in other ways but it was just where it came to her art she was ruthless so um, and and I empathize with that yeah you could see that ruthlessness in yourself too mm. and um, you know, um, I'm not very tolerant if people say things about my work that just isn't right. <laughs> I mean, and um, which I don't feel is right. And um, although I'm open to criticism, but it's just... Um, yeah, it doesn't seem like an no, arrogance, like a sort no. of touchy arrogance. It's just, it's much deeper than that. It's like... It's being completely dedicated to something. Mm. It's, it's that. Yes, yes. And, um, and I think um, she, what she resented about Augustus was this... He, he really did want to kind of possess her. And, um, and she resented that, I think. And I think a lot of people may have wanted to kind of possess her. Um, partly because of her apparent reserve, yeah, they um, they wanted that for themselves, and so she, she had to kind of um, create quite a hard shell to maintain her autonomy. Really, mm, a lot. I mean, yes. in some ways, it's a book about autonomy and how you maintain it. So there's incredibly. There's incredibly moving sections of it which are about the conflict between art and motherhood, which I think you write so fantastically about. You know, you're, it's really touching how you write about how much you love your son, but also you're very unsparing about what you had to do to survive as an artist. And in a letter to John... Sorry, I can't read anymore without glasses. In a letter to John, you observed that she wasn't a mother. She stayed always a daughter. And then you, there's a quote... 
Nothing about you has been damaged or deflected. And I wondered what you meant by that, and also what the experience of being a mother has brought to your work. Yes, I, um, I'd quite like to know the answer to that myself. But, um, <laughs> because um, because so, it has, though, hasn't it? Well, um, I think it has. I, um, when I was pregnant with Frank, I was so worried that I was going to give up painting um, that I, I started the most ambitious painting I've done, really, and that was my, um, the family group um, with my four sisters and my mother in the centre, and my father had just died. And, and I, I started it um, more or less as I got pregnant. <laughs> And, and then it was sort of um, a quarter of the way through when I gave birth. And I just knew that um, if I didn't go back to it quite soon, then it would, it, I, the intensity would, would go. Um, and so I, I felt completely committed to returning to my painting. Um, because I'd set myself this challenge beforehand. Um, but in fact, I think um, it was tremendously painful to do that, and I hadn't expected it to be that painful to leave my, my baby behind. And, um, um, but I think the um, emotion deepened. I think I... Uh, the compassion I felt for my sitters deepened through becoming a mother. And um, I think, to some extent, I'm never quite as um, aesthetic a painter as Gwen John. I think very often, like when she mm. paints, you know, she did a painting of an old woman, which she just called Old Woman at the end of her life. And she's really only interested in the kind of the way that the cloth is um, on her dress, and she doesn't really get into the kind of psychological empathy. Yeah. And and I think um, if she'd been a mother, maybe that side of her art might have been brought out more. That's why I thought the word damaged was so interesting, because you know you think of damage as a harm has been done, but also that's what that's an opening. That's a yes. wounding which creates an opening, and that's why I thought it was quite an interesting way to describe it, that it's to be an artist who is undamaged isn't necessarily going to be the best kind of artist. No, no, that's Like Rembrandt's that's damaged Re face, Rembrandt's damaged, Which you talk yes. about so yeah. beautifully, that sense of somebody who has, has been humiliated, has yeah. experienced pain. Yes, yes. No, I think that's a really, really important point, Olivia. And... Um, but it's, um, it's also such a complex point that it's, you can't kind of say um, that that's the route to, to um, deepening your art either. So um, I think, yeah. Um, yeah. But I think her kind of commitment to, to beauty um, brought with it that feeling of being undamaged as well, which, I mean, her paintings are so, so beautiful. They're, mm. they're, the, the beauty is the kind of intensity of them. Each, each mark is perfectly placed. Um, and even the... the the freest of her watercolours, um, each mark is perfectly placed. Um, the, there is something sort of almost God-given about her, her talent. It's, yeah. And in your mind, she gets better and better with this sort of shift towards abstraction at the end. Yes, I think, I think they, um, yeah, I think there's, um, yes, she becomes more and more extreme, yes. Yeah. So, 
I hate answer, asking these kind of questions, but I feel that it is inevitable that we will turn to love. And mm -hmm. that's such a big part of the book that both you and Gwen John were involved with older, more famous artists that she had a relationship with Rodin, you had a relationship with Lucien Freud. Um, and it, there's something, you know, you, 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 talk in, you talk a lot about being the model of that person, and Gwen John modelled for Rodin too, and the experience of being the model, of being this sort of silenced, submissive person who's put into a pose, who, who holds a pose. And I thought it's really interesting that with these books, the silent model is speaking back, and actually you're the person that's getting the last word, mm -hmm. and an incredibly articulate, eloquent last word on Lucien. I, I wondered, I wondered what that felt like, really, and I wondered how sort of conscious that was, or what that process felt like. Um, well, I think um, both the books that I've written, um, I never expected to, to to write anything, and um, after my first book, I didn't actually expect to write another. Um, but um, really, what sort of started me wanting to write in the first place was Lucian's death um, and followed not long after by my mother's death um, mm. and um, and I think Lucian's death kind of th threw everything into chaos in my mind actually um, he, when he was alive, he exerted such power over ev every, everything, my own life as well. I was um, very aware of his powerful presence. And you were so tied to him by having a son with him. I was so tied to him by having a son with him. Um, and that brought on, obviously, its own complications. Um, but with his absence, what was I to make of mm. this um, this absence, actually? And um, and it made me suddenly feel I don't know. Um, it was freeing in an odd way, and I did the painting, you know, painter and model. <sighs> the self-portrait yeah. um, as if I was sitting for him. And I started to want to explore um, what it was for a, a female artist to um, express an inward sort of power. Uh, and, um, yeah. and I suppose the paint, that painting, painter and model, was so kind of full of ideas um, mm. that it made me feel I, I, I wanted to um, express more directly through language um, what I felt about him. And, um, and be fearless about what I said about him, um, while still, um, because I, I do love him, so it was... That comes across. So it was, um, that was what I needed to work out, actually, um, through writing about that. But it's, it's not a sentimental, romanticised account at all, it's, it's a very... It's very honest. It's very mm. honest about all kinds of things. There's an amazing scene where you're painting... Is it from a photograph of him, you and Bella? That's right. It's and in the Gwen John book. Yeah, and yes. you can't get him right. No, that's right. And then there's a point where you do, and the, the line you say is you capture his mad eye or his mad people well, his, his, um, with, with that strange kestrel stare. That yes, yes, I'm that's assuming right. that that's what you meant rather yes, than he was insane. it was... Uh, <laughs> well, um, in the film... <laughs> <I>, well, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, in the photograph, he does look actually quite insane. He's, he's um, 
Um, he's but, been caught between two expressions. Well, is that what happened? He was, um, I think he was um, wanting to kind of show off a bit because he's with, you know, two, two young women. And, um, uh, but also being kind of self-conscious of how he was coming across. And so this kind of um, <laughs> doubleness gave his, his slight look of panic. And so, I did look at the picture. Yes, I looked at the yeah, photo after yes. I looked at your painting to try and see mm -hmm. the sort of panic. I mean, it's a strange picture. It's interesting. Yes, yes. and um, it, it is the, the panic of somebody um, who knows they're being captured, actually. And so I've, by capturing him a second time through painting, I've, I've really captured him. So, hmm. Is there a satisfaction in that of going from being the one who's looked at to the one who does the looking? Um, well, I've, yes, I mean, the title is Looking Back, um, which is obviously to do with memory as, as well as kind of looking back. Because he really... Yeah. didn't like to be um, looked at. I mean, I, there's a, a bit where I, you know, he, yeah, I, I talk a bit about that, yes. And um, um, But in fact, the image I've got of him is very different to the um, image of him in the photograph. I think I probably made him older and... I've probably made him look more hurt than he does in the photograph. So, um, because I was sort of aware that I was capturing him and... Um, the hurt of being seen. The hurt of being captured. Yeah. Yes. yes. Which is kind of a betrayal at the same time as an act well, it's of an love in a way. an imprisoning thing, isn't it? I mean, that's partly what... Um, when John was always fighting against with Augustus, is that wanting to be captured, to be pinned down, to be put in a box, um, to be defined. Yeah. Um, so, yes. It, okay, so there's a real honesty to how Celia writes about relationships. I mean, as you, can, as you can hear as we're talking, but in the book there's a real honesty about writing about relationships. Um, and there's a lot in the book about unrequited love, especially with Gwen, but you talk about it too, this sort of addictive poison that you gorge on. And then you say this really interesting line, what would we do if it was requited? I feel that my talent would shrivel up inside me. And I was really struck by that because, you know, I have written about loneliness a lot and sort of saw loneliness as this kind of thing that came from outside. And then when I got involved seriously with somebody for the first the first time really seriously, the sense of suddenly realising how much I'd actually desired that loneliness, kept that loneliness, chose people that preserved that because it was the way that I could make work. Yes. So the sort of threat that love poses to art making, it's hard to talk about, it's hard to admit, yes, and I think yes. you're very good at, at describing that, the sense of intimacy as a, as a challenge or the need to preserve solitude. I wondered if that was sort of what you saw in you and in Gwen John. Yes, I think that's right. Um, but I think there are kinds of relationships where it can, you know, if there's a kind of mutual respect for each other's privacy, it, it doesn't need to be um, intrusive in that same way. And that's where it felt like you had perhaps... I don't know if it's right to say wiser or luckier, but you'd moved on a step from John. I think she got stuck somewhere. Yes. She didn't have yeah. that luck to meet that kind of person. No, no. Um, or fiercely wanted not to. That's right. I mean, the thing is that, you know, um, if you open yourself up to love somebody, you're, um, you will get hurt. Um, everyone gets hurt if they love somebody. Um, mm. And... Um, and it's not this comforting thing, mm. um, you know, that one desires to be loved because of the consolation, but in fact, it's dangerous. And the danger is that you're, you get hurt. Mm. And, um, but whether you get destroyed, that's the, 
that's the choice, actually. That, and um, there's a gap between yeah, those two things. Yeah. And I think Gwen, because of her kind of very thin-skinnedness and her almost need to be taken over, mm. I think she could have been destroyed. Mm. And um, there's a bit I talk about where she, she does, you know, in the war, the First World War, she, she did do, a, you know, she helped out and got quite community-spirited. Um, but the work she did during those years is, doesn't have the intensity. She, she, uh, yeah. um, she was not a public-spirited person. And um, I think she was right to, to fear um, companionship because I think she, she could very easily have, have lost her talent. And then the, the sort of the counterpassion to all of this, which you write about with, you know, the most extraordinary beauty and attentiveness is painting. It's the act of spending days in a studio using paint. And there's, there's um, this is such a beautiful description. Painting is a subterranean language that speaks most powerfully to lost souls. And, you know, you talk about being drenched, physically drenched in the scent of terps or having, <laughs> I love this, having Prussian blue in your hair and you wash it twice <laughs> and it's still there. So mm. the sense that painting is, you know, incredibly intimate. And I, I did an event talking about the painter Philip Guston last night and we were talking a lot about what he, why he was so passionate about paint. And the thing that he says a lot is, he wanted to surprise himself, but also he wanted to make something that felt real and alive and that when it worked, he'd leave his studio and feel as if there was a being in his studio. Mm. He's in there. Mm. And I wondered whether that, could, that made sense to you, that sense yes. of what you're doing in there. Yes, I, I think there is that. I think um, the thing is that it's, it doesn't feel... Because even to kind of set that kind of purpose... Um, you can't say it. You can't say it. It feels ha has to be mm. really fumbling in the dark, actually, mm. and um, um, so that the thing that's produced um, seems to come out of nowhere. And um, and actually, I've noticed, um, and I I do talk about this as well, that when I feel I'm working best, I'm working worst. When you talk about the picture, the tree, and yes. I've got it, I've got it, I it's know, fantastic. <laughs> and then you come in the next morning, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, you don't produce crudely. <laughs> no, um, but I've... I love that because I really believed you. I was like, mm. Celia's knocked it out of the park today. And then the next day, it's kind of, you know, yes. this feeling of which every artist recognises of, oh, oh, no. Yes. Mm. Take that away. That's right. And I, I think, um, I think I've come to kind of um, be suspicious of that feeling of euphoria when you really, really feel you've done something amazing. It should be distrusted <laughs> because it never, it's, it's never the case. So you've just got, <laughs> you've just got to be completely businesslike about, about just well, businesslike about fumbling in the dark. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so. and that's that's part of why the book is so. You know, there, there's a, another version of this book not written by you that would be incredibly sort of fair and about creativity and talking to a dead artist, and it it just isn't that at all. And I kept thinking, you know, it's because you keep it on such a business-like level. It's just very unsparing. And it, this is my last question. So you're talking about. You know, painful scenes, passionate scenes, but there's always this quality that's dispassionate. And you say, you say somewhere that you really admire the painter Alice Neal, who I love for her clarity mm -hmm. and her matter-of-factness. Mm -hmm. And it struck me, I don't, I don't think that your paintings are at all similar, but your writing is like an Alice Neal painting. You have that quality of just looking at everything very evenly and. You, this isn't you, actually, this is a quote from Gwen John. It is difficult to express oneself in words for painters. But you, you do it tremendously well. And I wondered, you know, it's your second book. Why write? And what is it that you can say in words that you can't say in a painting? Um, I think um, it, 
I've only ever written because I felt I could say something explicitly. I couldn't, I'm not um, a writer, I think, in the way you are. I'm not, I don't feel driven to write. Um, I don't feel any compulsion to write. And whereas I do feel driven to paint. And I yeah. think the, the fact that I've only written things when I've actually needed to say something may give it that kind of um, dispassionate quality. Um, if you see, if, does, if that yeah, makes that sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. It's a, it's a sort of, it's an enviable coolness, but, but you're talking about stuff that is sort of hot material, so I find it interesting because it's not, it's not quite what I experience in your paintings. Um, well, I think because I paint every day um, and the ma materiality yeah. of the paint is such a different thing, um, I, I started to write not only to do with the loss of Lucian, but also when my mother died, I realised when she died that it was her whole life that went with her, you know, her childhood and everything. It wasn't just yeah. uh, this old woman who'd died. And it made me see I, I really wanted to make a whole out of my own life. And, um, and then I, I, I started this, the Gwen John book, really, to do with coping with the emotions of knowing that my husband, Stephen Kupfer, was dying. Mm. And so in both cases, there were kind of um, turmoil emotions that I needed to kind of um, get a dispassionate um, view on. And language um, helped more than painting in that respect. Maybe language is more a place in which you can be cool than painting, yeah, yes, that's where right. you, the attachment is stronger. Yes, I think so. Cause um, painting is so much more. You well, know, it's your whole body. It's your whole body. It's more. It's more almost like, you know, performance or dance or something. It it comes from a different place. Yeah. Whereas for writing, it's your your head. So yes. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going to open this up to the audience in the room and the audience in the larger world. Um, does anybody have any questions for Celia? Hello. Um, I hope you do write more, not through pain, but generally. Um, I wondered if instead of coolness, it was perhaps a carefulness with your language on that kind of more time to work with, because I noticed when you were talking about Gwen John going to the slate, you didn't say followed, it was that. And then also <laughs> went to the slate, it felt like a, a choice rather than... I don't know, it felt more natural to say that, but that's what I wondered. Yes. If no, that's I, a question, I'm sorry. No, I think you're right. The, 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 um, the kind of precision of language is, is very important. And, um, and I, I can see how writers become, you know, because words, using the right words and... Um, and not using the same word again unless it's deliberately, it could become a, such a completely obsessive thing. <laughs> that, um, yeah. Do you think you'll write more? Um, or is it hard to tell from It's here? hard to tell because um, I didn't actually think 
I would write another one after self-portrait, but it was partly to do with um, my husband's health, but, but it was partly because I was a bit taken aback by some of the responses to self-portrait, where um, I felt, um, as I said in our talk just now, that self-denial was seen as victimhood. Yeah. And, and I thought, that's, that's, that's wrong. I've got to write something else to try and um, put that, that right. Thanks. I'm glad you did it. Because, mm. I, yeah, I felt like that was a mm. misreading and that yes. wasn't what was going on. Yeah. But this book feels... Well, I mean, Self-Portrait was a fantastic book, but this book feels so large and ranging and exciting. I mean, it sounds like we've sort of talked about painful elements of it, but it's terribly exciting as well, being with you while you look at the world or while you look at paintings and the sort of the precise, loving eye you bring to things was, was very exciting for me. Does anyone else have a question? And are there questions arising from... I've got two from cyberspace, Hi. Hello. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about the criminality of hidden feelings. And also when you were talking about sainthood and the, well, what I consider the objection of sainthood, those two both seem to me like negations, like criminality being the negation of being able to move through the world normally, and sainthood, of course, being the negation of humanity. Um, and uh, when, then when you said just now that you wanted to subvert that idea of self-denial as victimhood, I wondered how you would define these kinds of, um, this bilateralism of freedom that is present between men and women living in this world where men tend to see freedom as wildness just to be really overarching and women perhaps tend to treat freedom as more of something that constitutes or even demands limitations? Yes. Um, well, that's a huge question that I, I don't think I'm really um, able to answer now, but I, I think it's an extremely important um, question and could be gone into very deeply. Um, but I suppose to do with the um, the limitation, it can be a choice. Um, so there is freedom in that. Um, I think there is freedom for for women, um, certainly here, um, to to um, be wild and. Um, uh, but I think it is, a, it is a different choice for a woman, I, I agree. But I think it's, it is a choice. It's not it's squashed into, um, into victimhood. Um, question from David on the internet. <laughs> not me, <laughs> a different David. Uh, thank you for such an interesting perspective. I'm really interested in both Celia and John drawing their work from somewhere very deep and private. My question is, when Celia started a more formal engagement with art, did her experience of artistic engagement change or feel threatened? What, I'm not quite sure what, uh, what the more formal... Um... Can you read it again? Oh, well. I, I, I think he's thinking about when you said you um, didn't, uh, you hadn't studied art before becoming an oh, artist. Oh, I see, yes. No, I think, and how um, that changed yes. your practice. No, I, I think, because um, when I first started, um, um, my father was head of this religious community in North Devon, on the North Devon coast, and it was the most beautiful place, and... Um, I went to a, a girls' boarding school, and um, and I didn't have any privacy either at home or at school. So art became my way of kind of gaining privacy, and and what I painted most was was nature. I, um, and then, so when I and I didn't look at other painters, but when I went to the Slade, I. Um, 
I, um, there, was, there was a lot of life drawing and, and that was what one did at the Slade. And um, I was no good at life drawing and I couldn't see the point of it. And, um, and then started to find my way through realising I needed to work from people who mattered to me. So, in that way, I, I'm not sure if I've answered the question there. <laughs> Is there another online? I, I do have an interesting one here. Can you ask this from Mary Ann? This is Mary Ann speaking. Uh, she said that writing and choosing the right word could become an obsession, but isn't the act of painting similarly obsessive? Almost an addiction for some artists. Oh, it's definitely an addiction. There's no question it's an obsessive thing. Um, but I think the... I think words and paint are different. Um, I think... Um, what we were talking about, about the kind of... Um, the, the body, the bodily um, thing. The, the painting comes from a different place it's you're taken over when you're when you paint I mean I um, whereas um, using words requires thinking in a different way when I'm painting I'm not thinking and, and I think that's that's the difference maybe that's part of what's addictive about it as well yes yes to enter right. those states where to you're not there yes exactly yes Anybody else? Last chance saloon, yeah. Mike. Mike. <laughs> Quick question. I wonder when do you write and how do you write if you feel comfortable asking, asking that? When do I write? When and how? how when? What is it like for you writing compared to standing at an easel? Oh, I um. It's, it's a very different thing. I mean, I'm really on... I can't copy and paste or do anything. I type with, <laughs> I type with one thing. And um, so it's, it's actually not... Um, it's, and I get very knotted shoulders and um, my eyes go funny. And it, it's not um, pleasurable in the way that painting can be. Um, so it's... Not a, at all. Um, well... Maybe it is, but um, <laughs> but I think I had the impression when you were describing things mm. that you found beautiful that you were having a, that there was a lot of pleasure going on. But maybe I'm wrong. When you're describing the colours in a Gwen John and you're picking out what the chestnut brown and the shades of grey, I felt like you were enjoying yourself. I uh, I think that I because I I've, I think I've um, I write things down and then kind of um, copy them onto the computer and then. Um, it so maybe it's the looking that's the pleasure rather than the yes, writing. Yes, that's right. It's the looking. It's actually because I find it quite helpful um, seeing things written, you know, in printed text rather than my own handwriting. And I feel there's a pleasure in actually having created a word that doesn't belong to me kind of thing because it's printed. Any more final last few seconds of chance? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh! <laughs> Hello. Um, you said that you paint every day. I was just wondering what happens. Do you have a plan? Do you have an idea in mind or do you just arrive at your canvas? How does um, it? Well, if I'm. Um, I, I sort of that I do have times when I'm not painting every day, but kind of drawing and planning, and so um, I actually do have to have a kind of image in my mind for a painting to to work. I don't just kind of, you know, I'm not like, you know, some people are sketching everywhere. I'm not like that at all, and so it has to come from, and I you know, an image I have in my, in my mind. And so 
if I'm not painting, I'm kind of planning and, yeah. Okay. It has been just the greatest pleasure to talk to you, Celia. Oh, I, I really love the book. Thank you, Olivia. It's, I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, and just blissful to be in a room with all of you people and all of the people elsewhere that we can't see. Um, so Celia's going to sign now if you want to buy the book, and I highly recommend that you do. Um, there ends our evening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.